there's nothing good we can accomplish without first fighting for it. Galatians chapter 5, verses 1 through 17. Paul is writing to the church, and we've been in this series trying to get them to understand the, the goodness of God, ultimately, what Jesus Christ accomplished for mankind and how he died to have relationship with them, but also to set them free from the bondage they had been living in. And so he's coming to a place where he starts to personalize and bring practical application as we've looked at the theological aspects in the last few chapters. Uh, he's approaching like this is how you apply this in life. And so he says in verse 1, stand fast. Everybody say stand fast. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free. Now understand in some of your translations, the proper translation might simply be to stand fast, therefore, in the freedom by which Christ has made us free. He's made us free. Now stand in that freedom. Do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that you become circumcised, you will profit nothing. Christ will profit you nothing. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. You have become estranged from Christ. You who attempt to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. That sounds like a scary place to be, right? For we through the Spirit eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything, but faith working through love. You ran well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion does not come from him, God above, who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in you, in the Lord, that you will have no other mind, but he who troubles you shall bear his judgment, whoever he is. And I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why do I still suffer persecution? Then the offense of the cross has ceased. I could wish that those who trouble you would even cut themselves off. For you, brethren, have been called to liberty, only do not use that liberty, liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. I say then, walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. Pray with me. Father, I pray that your word alone this morning would pierce our hearts, would pierce our souls, would pierce our spirit. Lord, that you would bring change and transformation into our lives. That your word, which is life, would resurrect dead things inside of us. Things that we don't even know are dead that you would breathe fire on those things that have become just embers in our heart, Lord, and that you would bring your spirit, a spirit of boldness inside of us to be able to stand and hold our ground and fight for the freedom that you died for. Jesus Christ, I pray this morning that your word 
would move us, teach us, empower us to be who you want us to be. In Jesus' mighty and precious name we pray, amen. So once again, what we see is in these verses, the Apostle Paul is addressing the false teaching of circumcision. Now, if you haven't been here, you're going to think, what is he talking about circumcision on Sunday morning for? Now, it was the sign of the faith of the Jews in the Old Testament. They had to become circumcised, and that became a sign of the covenant, that they were God's chosen people. And so as people were getting saved and receiving Christ in their lives, there were Jews that, were, that had believed in Jesus, but they said, no, you also need to have the sign of the Old Testament. You need to still get circumcised because that shows who we are. And Paul was fighting against this mentality that you do not need to add anything to Jesus in order to be saved. And so he's addressing that and the idea that you still need to keep the Old Testament laws that were in place. However, at this point in his letter, when he's speaking to the Galatian Christians, Paul begins to warn them about the path that they've been taking by the choices that they've made. He's beginning to warn them that really what you've decided to do is turn around and start walking back towards the enemy. And I'll read a few of these verses to show that. He warns them in verse 1, do not be entangled again. Everybody say again with the yoke of bondage, with slavery in your life, like you've already been set free from that, why do you want to go back to being entangled once again? In verse two, if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. Like if you really go through with this and you start to obey these laws and and think that you have to earn something, then you get nothing from what Christ has accomplished for you. In verse three, every man who becomes circumcised it's, he's a debtor to keep the whole law. In other words, if you think you've got to just keep part of it, well, really, then you've got to keep all of it because Christ has set you free from all of it. Number Verse four, you've become estranged from Christ. You have fallen from grace. All of these are warnings. Like you've been set free. You have the victory in Christ Jesus. But understand in the choices that you've made and the way that you're walking back towards the enemy right now, this is what's happening. You are following currently from grace. You're in the process of walking backwards. He even states what he thinks about their frenemies, right? They think these guys are friends of theirs because these guys are making them feel good about themselves, right? Because we want people to make us feel good about ourselves. That's a good friend. And Paul is saying, no, these guys are enemies of yours, recognize who it, who you are hanging out with, like we talked about last Sunday. And so in verse 10, he says, but he who troubles you shall bear his judgment, whoever he is. He's like, listen, you got to understand this person that you're hanging with that makes you feel good, that's causing you to fall from grace right now and not get anything out of what Christ has done for you. He's going to get his judgment one day. Here's a warning. Judgment is coming upon him. Don't join together with him. And then he says in verse 12, I could wish that those who trouble you would even cut themselves off. So what is he trying to say to them? He's like, listen, these guys are trying to get you to cut a little skin off. My hope is that they cut it all off themselves. Just get rid of the whole idea and there's nothing left. These aren't easy words that he's speaking. These are actually words of war. This is battle, like lose the whole thing, lose the whole thought, lose the whole idea. It's better to have lost it than to have lost your faith in Jesus Christ. Quit fighting over this. 
He wants them to fight, to recognize the enemy, the path they're going down, and who the enemy is, somebody who looks like a friend to them. And he wishes these things would happen to them so they would keep the faith, stand and fight for the faith. Now, here's what I find interesting. If someone were to ask you, what does it feel like to be a Christian, what would your response be? I think the idea of somebody saying, free, would be an uncommon response. There's a lot of responses Christians would give, but the idea that one would actually say, you know what it feels like? It's freeing to be a Christian. Like, we probably know that now that I've said that, but that's the response that God wants us to give. Like, I once lived a life in bondage, and I know what that felt like to be in bondage, to constantly be entangled in the yoke of bondage, to be caught up in the flesh of the world. I was once in bondage to thinking that I had to earn my goodness in life by doing certain things. And now that I've been set free from that, I can tell you that it is so much more freeing being in Christ. I could go down the road of, of being a, a blackout drunk in my final couple years of college and what that felt like and how I woke up in the morning and the things that went through my head and the thoughts of all of that to where eventually God delivered me from that. And now I can look back and think, wow, like so much difference. Like you don't even realize that until you've been set free from something. And then now I look at it and think, you know, that temptation, sure, every now and then it pops into my head, but I kick that thing out because you know what? I would never want to go back to the way that I once felt prior to that. God wants you to feel free in the freedom that he has been given, that he has given you. And the challenge is this, if we've been given this path of freedom, he wants us to walk down the path of freedom, but on both sides of this path of freedom, it's not really like free to just roam anywhere you want. There's guardrails on the side because on one side of the path of freedom that he's created for you, you have legalism. You have religiosity. You have people who think that, you know, things have to be a certain way, be done a certain way for in order for it to be right with God. It's got to happen this way. It's got to happen the Baptist way. It's got to happen the Methodist way. It's got to happen the Presbyterian way. It's got to happen the Pentecostal way. It's got to happen the way that you think that it should happen in life. Now, on the opposite side of the path of freedom, you have the world that says, no, come this way because this feels good for you. This this you'll like. This will bring you happiness. This will, this will bring joy. There's freedom that's over here. These things taste good. They look good. They feel good. Come on this side. And the real challenge for a Christian in fighting for freedom is to stay on the road that Jesus has carved out for you that is the path to freedom. The enemy wants to stand in that middle of that road and he wants to get you to sway to, from one side to the other. He doesn't even care if you go to the religious side. Just don't find freedom in the religious side. Just put everybody else in bondage while you're on the religious side. He doesn't care if you go the path of pleasing yourself. He wants you to destroy yourself. And so the challenge really is, how do we walk down the road of freedom? And to understand that it's not called for us to walk that road by ourselves, but that God is with us. 
And so this morning out of this chapter, I want to just give you five aspects in the fight for freedom. Number one is the idea of slavery versus freedom. That's that's this, this side of the road over here. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free and do not get entangled again with the yoke of bondage. He's addressing the idea of legal, legalism, of the religious mindset. The yoke of bondage is the belief that you can do something to earn favor, to earn righteousness with God. And let me explain how crazy this is. If you have to do something, right, to earn credit or favor, to help pay a price for something that was given to you, then it really isn't a gift, is it? You're not receiving it as a gift. Have you ever had, like, you want to bless somebody, and so you go to bless them, and then they think they need to pay you because you wanted to bless them? Like, you take away their, their blessing. You're robbing their gift, you're robbing what's coming from their heart. Like, to me, that's even disrespectful. And, and in God's perspective, let me put it in probably a, a very imperfect way and yet a closer example. Some of you have probably heard me talk about this when my, many times, but when my wife and I were first about to get married, you know, part of our testimony is that... Uh, we had our kids my senior year in college. We weren't married, and we had twins. And so that summer, her mom had said something to me, and I said, let's just get married. And, uh, and so that was our engagement. Let's just get married. I tried to make up for it later by calling the radio station. You remember back in those days when you called the radio station and then play our song and, you know, ask her, but by then it was too late because I just had already said those words weeks earlier, let's just get married. That's not what, what a bride wants to hear when she's looking forward to getting married. And so we had went out, and we were really poor, poor back then, and we picked out rings, and she got her ring. And so that was something that would sometimes get brought up. And you want to know just the regrets of a husband is not getting started off on the right foot. And so always in my mind, I had it set that someday we're going to replace that ring and I'm going to do it right. And I waited in my mind until uh, we were married 25 years. And so I had had this planned for years. Sometimes it was like, if we make it to 25 years, Right? And about a year, year and a half prior to that, I had conspired with my daughters on how we were going to make sacrifices to raise the funds to buy my wife a new ring. And so we planned. And over that year, uh, my wife had doubts. She had questions. She had unbelief. There were times she's like wondering what I'm doing in Spokane. Why were you down over here? You know, I, she would say, uh, I would have to make up lies. I'm with Daryl looking for T-shirts right now, you know, and we were there shopping for rings. Uh, we went from all over Coeur d'Alene to Spokane. We did, you know, we went everywhere. And I wanted to find that perfect gift for her on our 25th anniversary. The cry of my heart was to really show her this wasn't a mistake, babe. I love you so much. And I want to make up for what I did in the beginning 
so that the next 25 years we're on solid ground. And not that we weren't, you know, but I just wanted to show her. That's been in my mind since day one that I need to make up for this. And so we went and uh, I finally gave her, saved up more money than I would have ever dreamed to spend on jewelry. And you can ask her, my mindset when we first got married was jewelry is just a waste of money. Like, we don't have to get fancy rings. It's all a waste. That's biblical. Come on, somebody. <sighs> it's materialism. That's not what we need to get caught up in. Like, I had this whole negative mindset, right? And so now I'm like, oh, man, I want to get something really special and had a ring actually created for her that uh, I had them make a style of ring and then uh, spent more money than we ever would have dreamed of spending on a piece of jewelry so that I could give it to her. Now, I don't say any of that, none of that. The money means nothing. My point is this, is, is in my heart, I wanted to give her something that I felt was now invaluable to reflect the love that I have for my wife. And so I gave her that ring, and, you know, that was, I think, two or three years ago now. Can you imagine if my wife would have received that gift and said, oh, man, that's beautiful. Thank you so much. I appreciate the love that you've just shown me and the sacrifice that you made to do this, even in times where I didn't understand or I didn't, I had doubts about what was going on. Now I understand what you were doing. I understand the plan that you had. I understand the purpose behind it. Thank you so much. Like, honey, I'm going to do everything I can to pay you back for this ring. Can you imagine? Like, I... She, she goes out and she starts doing things to start paying back, you know, $5 here, $10 there, 100 bucks here. All of that would seem so minuscule to the worth of what was actually given to her. And I'm not talking about just the sign of the love. I'm talking about the love that created the sign. It would seem, seem worthless. It would seem so minuscule. There's no need for it. Like, you can't pay this back. You don't understand. It was a gift to you. Why are you wanting to pay this back? You don't need to. I didn't give it so that you, it would be disrespectful. And then can you imagine that if she went out and got a job and a second job and a third job because she knows how great it was and that she would think that she would have to work all the time in order to pay it back and then instead of giving her that ring to draw her even closer to me as a sign of love, all it has done is cause her to be away from me because she's constantly thinking she needs to go out and work for it all the time. And in her busyness, we're actually further away from each other than we were meant to be when I gave the gift to begin with. Somebody following me, like, this is what Christ did for you and I. His gift was his life. He laid it down. There is no greater gift than the giving of a life for another person. And he laid it down for us while we weren't even in love with him. But while we were worthless, but we were still worth everything in Jesus' eyes. And to think that we could somehow pay Jesus back by our good works is an insult to Jesus Christ. 
The minuscule things that we can do to earn righteousness, right ways, good favor, all these little things we think that we need to do, that we should be doing, mean absolutely nothing in comparison to what he did for you and I. And then on on top of that, not just what we think we can do, but we can never do something, do enough to attain that value that we are then getting caught up in the busyness of good works that we're so busy, we don't spend time with the one who gave everything for us. It's insulting. You could see why Paul would use the words like, you know what, there's, there's no value for you in this. You will receive nothing from what Christ has done if that's the mindset that you're going to have. Romans 4, 4 through 5, Paul writes these words to the church and he says, now to him who works, thinks they always have to do something to, to earn good works and to earn righteousness, to earn right ways, to earn God's favor. Now to him who works, the wages that you receive for doing those things are not counted as grace, but as debt. Like you just keep doing that. You're just working yourself into more debt and more debt because you're taking yourself further and further and further away from me. You're falling from grace, not being counted as grace. But to him who does not work but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, that's us, his faith, his faith, our faith is accounted for righteousness. What he's trying to get across to us is instead of taking on the burden of righteousness, Paul just encourages them in the battle to stand fast right where you're at. That word for stand fast in the Greek means to stand firm, to be constant. You don't need to be up and down. Just stand and be constant in your standing. And it also means to persevere. And so you are persevering no matter what's coming against you. The wind is blowing hard. It's not going to knock you down. You are going to stand there no matter what. He's trying to encourage them like, listen, don't get caught up in this. The enemy wants to pull you into legalism. You've given your life to Christ. Okay, that's fine. You surrendered your heart. Now let me tie you up in a different way and get you to think that all these things have to happen in a certain way and you need to be the one that does them. But Paul would write to the church in Ephesus in chapter 6, verses 11 and 13, he says essentially the same thing, that our job is to stand, to put on the full armor of God so that you'll be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. And what are the schemes of the devil? The schemes of the devil are he's going to stand in the middle of the road in freedom and he's going to roar and try and scare you to go into one side or the other side. If he can get you to go over here, you know what? That's the scheme. You might think it's good, but in thinking it's good, it's really tying you up in bondage. It's a scheme that he has. All right, you surrendered your heart. Now let's get you all turned up in knots for the kingdom of God so that you can't go anywhere or accomplish anything. Or the scheme of the enemy has come over here because it's good and he gets you to lose your flesh because you're following after the desires of the world. It's the scheme. He wants to tie us up 
even in the religiosity. If we would be free from the yoke of slavery, we must take our position in Christ every day. Put on the armor of God and be aware of the schemes of the devil. And in that, what we have to do is this. Stop thinking of ourselves as employees of God and as God being our employer. Because God is not our employer. He doesn't need my labor. He doesn't need me to pay for things or to pay him back for anything. I need to understand that when it comes to God, I'm the needy person in the relationship, right? And God is the workman and he has all the know-how, the power and the integrity to meet every single one of my needs. He is the workman, not me. According to what Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, he described how God now lives in us, right? Christ in us. Christ in us is the basis for our assurance that we are the children of God, that our position in God's family is secure. Everybody say secure. That we have been set free from the guilt of sin, that we are being set free from the power of sin, and that we will become entirely set free from the presence of sin. That's the goodness of our God. All three of these are true, but the part that I want to focus on to bring me to the next point is this. Number two, there is a war that is constantly going on between your flesh and the Spirit of God. Verse 13, for you, brethren, have been called to liberty. What's your calling? To liberty. Some people struggle like they want to say, what's my calling? What's my call? Your calling right now is to freedom. He's calling you to freedom. He has called you to liberty. Only do not use that liberty as an opportunity for the flesh. Now understand, in the Greek right here, the word for opportunity, it's a military term. And what it's referring to is a base of operations behind enemy lines. And from that base of operations, what would happen is, is they would cross over the enemy lines, they would take ground, they would establish a base from that ground, and then that would give them even more power to defeat the enemy because they have an established base on enemy grounds and they could start fighting from that position. And so what is Paul saying? He says, don't give opportunity for the flesh. Like what happens is when you use your freedom to enjoy the lust of the world and fulfill your fleshly desires, that you're giving the enemy the position inside of your soul somewhere so that now he has even more power to be able to fight from that position. He's crossed his enemy's line, which is you, and he has an established territory there. And because you've given him that territory, he's fighting from that territory to make your life even worse. See, this has to do with the fight. Understand the enemy is fighting against you. And so don't give up a position for the enemy to then empower you in all these other areas of your life. You've given up room for him. You've, you've allowed him to establish this sin area in your life, and he fights from that. He'll make that sin area even larger. He'll make his base even larger. Not only will he make that base larger, but he'll start to attack other areas of your life. And he'll gain victory in those until you eliminate the enemy from that position. Do not give opportunity for 
the flesh. Verse 17, for the flesh lusts against the spirit of God. You're actually warring against God when you choose flesh. Can you imagine the God who saved me, I'm turning my back against, I'm actually fighting against him because I'm choosing my, my, the, flesh of, the lust of my flesh in those moments. And it says the flesh, which are the desires of the world that we feed and we give into, and the spirit are contrary to one another. These two principles are at war with each other. The flesh and the spirit. And listen, here's what I want us to gather in this. These, these two things are constantly battling each other, aren't they? There's, a, there's an unrelenting, unremitting uh, antagonism toward each other. Our flesh, God's spirit. Our flesh, God's spirit. This constant battle is ongoing. And sometimes we think, if I could just get a break from this. But you know what happens is that in this ongoing battle, it's not the battle that's sinful. I want you to hear me. You think that because you're having this battle that you're in sin. You have this tendency to think that it's hopeless because you're constantly fighting these feelings. You're constantly fighting these temptations. But it's not the fight that is sinful. It's when you give up the fight that it becomes sinful. Like the fact that you have any fight left inside of you, your heart's still pointed toward God and you're fighting. But it's when somebody says, you know what, I used to battle this so much and finally I just, I gave in. Like it's a part of who I am. That's when the battle's been lost. That's the sin. I, I, I begin to justify it somehow in my life. And so I begin to, to think that it's okay. You know what? It, God put this in me, whatever it is. And so I start actually believing something else because I've decided to give up the fight. But as long as there's a fight, you're still winning. And you will gain strength. And I can't say it enough. The more victory you gain in those times of temptation, the stronger you become in your faith. Listen, no one escapes the conflict. Everybody has it. No one can avoid the struggle between flesh and spirit. No one gets a, a Christian life, you know, free card from outward pressure and inward turmoil. Nobody gets that. Even Jesus went through that. And it's crucial to allow, to, to understand that God allows the struggle to be a part of our lives. Because ultimately, you know, like God could take something from you like that, boom. He could remove the temptation. He could remove the battle. He could remove all of those things from us. But that is what helps us grow in our faith. But by grace we have to understand we grow in grace. We aren't alone in our struggle. And that's where he brings up for you to understand what it means to walk in the spirit. Number three, walking in the spirit. Verse 16, I say then, walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. Walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. Now imagine... I don't know if you guys were like this, if you had kids, or if you've ever been with little kids, you get down on the floor at their level, and you begin to play with them, right? 
And so when my grandson and granddaughter come over, we always have these big blocks that come out into the living room. And then we have these magnetic things that come out into the living room. And then we have monster trucks that come out into the living room. And we're playing with all of these different blocks and magnetic things and monster trucks. And when it's time to be done with playtime, there can often be this battle about how the mess gets cleaned up. Now, I'm speaking from a grandfather perspective, but even from a father perspective or somebody that's in authority over, over little kids' perspective. At that point of needing to end what was fun, and there's now a mess that has been created, the father can look at the kids and he can demand that they clean that up. Now you guys clean up the mess. And if he demands that they clean it up and leaves them to themselves to clean up the mess, you know what? It's a battle. It's a fight because they're going to whine. They're going to complain. This isn't fair. Why do I have to do this? I don't want, I'm tired. I'm hungry. Whatever it might be, any and every excuse that a child would throw out there to not have to take part in cleaning up the mess. And then the father could secondly demand them to clean up. And if they don't get it cleaned up, then there's going to be a punishment for not cleaning it up, right? You don't get that cleaned up, you're going to get time out, whatever people do nowadays. Get your butt whooped. Get that mess cleaned up. And you know what? It takes 10 times longer for them to clean it up. But eventually, hours down the road, you might have the mess cleaned up. But the father can take a second choice in ending the fun and helping clean up the mess. I don't know what, if you guys have ever done this, I hope you do. But what I like to do is the little bag that all the blocks go in is say, okay, it's time to clean up. Now let's take the blocks and throw them into the bag. And so we start taking shots at throwing them into the bag. And, and sometimes they miss and we got to go over and grab it again and shoot them in there until the whole mess is cleaned up. And you know what happens? It gets done faster. There's no complaining because it's fun. And ultimately the mess gets cleaned up because the father participated in the cleaning up of the mess with his children. And that's what Paul is trying to get across here. He wants us to understand that you aren't responsible for cleaning up the mess by yourself, but Christ in you, that God is with you that you can walk in the spirit and he's there to help you. You know, the first way wasn't very freeing, was it? The demand, the time limits, the threat of punishment, there's no freedom in that. But the second way was very freeing. It was even fun. It was more productive. It was helpful and it got the mess taken care of. Understand this, the same work to do, he had the same thing to do, the same work to do, but in one case, 
it's under the yoke of slavery. In the other case, it was done in freedom. Now, the key to freedom is a question of your mindset. Whether you have to do work yourself to escape punishment, or whether you understand that the Father comes down to help us, and part of that help is just to be with us. So when you're living for Christ in the things that you do, are you doing them because you fear the punishment that might come upon you if you don't do these things, a yoke of bondage in your life? Or do you do these things for Christ? Do you live your life for Christ, understanding God is with me and he's going to help me? And I'm so thankful that he even desires to be with me and we're going to take care of this situation in, our, in my life. Walking in the spirit is living life as a Christian with the understanding that God's spirit is at work in you. He's with you. He will guide you and he will direct you. He wants you to know that you are not alone in this battle. If you ask the father, he gets down in the mess with you and he helps you clean it up. Philippians 1.6, Paul would write to the church in Philippi, and I am certain that God, he's certain, there's no question, that God who began the good work within you will continue his work until it is finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. What's he doing? He's writing a letter to a bunch of other Christians who are struggling in life, and he wants them to understand, you might be in this battle of the flesh versus the spirit, but know this, I'm certain that God who began the good work when he brought you to the place of salvation is going to finish the good work that's inside of you. That there will be that day when Christ returns, that it is completely done. Which brings me to number four in the fight for freedom is that we have to understand part of that battle, as long as there's a fight going on, it's a good fight. And that the hope is in the future, we will have a future righteousness. Verse 17, he says, so that you do not do the things that you wish, right? I want you to understand this. There's a future righteousness. And he addresses them in verse 17, he says, I don't want you, that you do not do the things that you wish to do. You desire to do these things, but you're not doing them. Romans 7, 19 through 20, Paul would expand upon that idea when he would write, for the good that I will to do, the good things that I want to do, I do not do. How many people have had that fight before? I want to do these things, but I'm not doing these things. It's frustrating. But the evil that I will not to do, that I practice. These things, I don't want to do these things, but I continue to find myself doing these things. He says in verse 20, now if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but the sin who dwells in me because I've given the opportunity, right, for the enemy to be there. Why do I do these things? What I want you to just hear from me this morning is it's not okay, but we will never be perfect. But we are to look forward. We're to look forward to the day we'll be set free from the presence of sin. There will be a day. Can you, you know what it's like right now in the world to like ever go somewhere and you're like, oh, it's just like, I don't want you to sound like overly righteous or real holy, but you're like, it's just filthy here. 
Like you're around somebody and you walk away and you feel dirty. Or you've allowed yourself, let's not pick on anybody else, let's pick on ourselves. You've allowed yourself to watch something you know you shouldn't have watched. To listen to something you know you shouldn't have listened to. To speak something you know you shouldn't have spoken. And you walk away from that moment and you think, oh man, I am, I am sick. Like, there's that, you just feel dirty. Like even being around it, you can drive down the city sometimes and see the billboards and just see it all around you. Like to think that there will be a day. My future hope is that there will be a day of future righteousness where we will not even be in the presence of sin. And that's what he's talking about right here. Verse five, for we through the spirit eagerly wait for. There's this desire in the midst of the battle, we still understand we're eagerly waiting for the hope of righteousness by faith. There will be that day, and I can't wait to get to that day where there is no longer a fight because there's no sin around me. This should be an encouragement for saints who have come to Christ, who long to stand fast in grace, but know that we're still sinful, right? We're still an imperfect people. Full and perfect righteousness is in our future. It's our hope. It's not what we possess right now. And knowing this should help us from falling into the trap of judging ourselves as hopeless. You guys ever feel hopeless in that? Like, man, can I ever overcome this? And what the enemy wants is for you to feel hopeless so you give it up altogether. And what God is saying is like, no, I'm here to clean this mess up with you. Stand your ground. Fight the fight. Fight the good fight. Matthew 5, 6 says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Right? So we hunger as we wait. We hunger as we wait. And in that, we aren't satisfied by sin. Right? There's a battle that goes on in our lives. There's struggle that takes place. We're fighting. And then there's failure. And then there's confession. And then there's forgiveness. And then there's relief. And then there's joy. And then there's power. And then there's failure all over again. And then there's confession. And then there's forgiveness. And then there's power. And then there's failure all over again. But each time that I go through that and I grow stronger and stronger because I'm continuing the good fight of faith, you know what it does for me? Is it causes me to grow in the grace of God. It causes me to fall more and more in love with him. That his grace is so great that he's forgiven me again and that I can do this with Christ's help. That's what he wants for us. He wants us to understand, stand in that freedom that you have been given. And then finally, why in the world did he give you that freedom? If it's not to fulfill the lusts of the flesh and to get caught up in religiousness, why did he give us that freedom? He says in these verses that you have been freed to love. Verse 13, for you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only don't use that liberty as an opportunity to fulfill your lusts, the flesh, the ways of the world, to go into doing those things. That's not what it's for. What does he say? But through love, serve one another. 
He sets you free so that you would then serve other people from the same love that he has given to you. Verse 14, for all the law is fulfilled in one word. Now he goes on to say an aspect of the law, but what's that one word? Love. For all of the law is fulfilled in this one word. That word is love. Even in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. He's saying, I've died to give you freedom. But listen, freedom minus love equals freedom to sin. And in, in that, the freedom minus love, you will devour each other. You choose what pleases you. You choose self-indulgence. You choose what you think is right. You choose you all the time. And in you choosing you and the freedom that Christ has given you, all it does is causes the church to consume each other. And in that, we risk destroying friendships and we tear the family of God apart. It's minus the perfect love of God in us. But freedom plus love means service to others. Paul says there's a better way than indulging the flesh. It's called serving one another in love. Think about this. We wouldn't have the freedoms in our country that we have right now if there weren't men and women who fought for our freedoms out of their love for our country, for the freedoms that we've been given. The emphasis here, it's interesting because that word for serving, right, from the Greek, it means to become a slave. Serving, slave. It's the same Greek word. So what he's talking about is we're not to be a slave or being yoked to bondage, become a slave again. But he's saying over here, now I want you to become a slave, slave to one another in love. That's what I died for, to set you free from. The emphasis on love is so important because this, listen, it's not the law on the outside, but the love on the inside that makes the difference in your path of freedom. Verse 6, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working through love. What's he saying? Like we've made this great big deal for five chapters out of circumcision. And what Paul's saying is circumcision isn't bad. Wait, didn't he not just talk against circumcision for five chapters? It's the heart behind the act. Like it's not a big deal. Like maybe you do something for the reason of health, better health, because you think it's more healthy to do it, right? But you don't do it to be right with God. Like whether you do it or you don't do it means absolutely nothing, he says, when it comes to our relationship with him. But what does mean something? Faith working through love. Here's where the Judaizers and so many other people get it wrong. They think that the only way to change behavior is through a system of laws. But laws will never change the heart. 
I hope that sinks. It's what he's been fighting against this whole time. Christianity works because it changes people from the inside out. And when Christ comes in, he changes everything. And the love of God is poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who lives within us. It was love that motivated God to send his son to the earth. For God so loved the world as they were that he gave. Christ flew from heaven and earth to, with wings of love in order to give us what he gave us, to serve man. He came to be a servant, he says. The love of God is poured into us by the Holy Spirit that lives within us. And now love says, I will go beyond myself to take care of you and your needs. I will reach beyond myself to love you. Paul's trying to get us to understand the only thing that matters is knowing Jesus Christ as Savior and through the faith in what he's done, who he is, that faith that by works we're reaching beyond ourselves in love. We've got to fight for that. Over this last week, there's been, right, some tragic events that have taken place in our community. Really, uh, in speaking with someone in our community that's involved in a lot of the first responder stuff, we were talking how actually over the last year, we've probably not had a worse year that I can ever remember it living here when it comes to, to death and bad things happening and seeing the ways of the world come into our community and just bring destruction. Now, I see people say things like, you know, it's because all them outsiders have moved into the community. The truth is, it's not the outsiders. I'd say this even in the flesh, that when you've looked at who's done what, most of them have come from our own valley. The outsider is the devil, because we don't fight flesh and blood. The battle's against principalities. And so it's the church's responsibility to stand here and fight for what is right. And so in this fighting for the path of freedom, fighting on the path of freedom to not go one way or the other, we have to be so cautious not to get caught up in jumping over to legalism, religious mindset, or into the ways of the world and what the world would tell us to do. And so I just feel like in this fight for freedom, what the Lord put in my spirit today is that we need to be a people who right now understand that the enemy is taking ground in our community. And God has given us this community. This is our land. This is our community. God died for every one of these people. We need to get it right in our own lives so that we can help make sure that it's right in the lives of the people around us. And so there should be a greater fight in boldness inside of us right now than ever before. Like, I don't want to go to the left and I don't want to go to the right. I want this path right here that Jesus died to give me. I'm fighting for this in my own life. And as I'm fighting for this in my own life, I want to love other people to this same path. 
I want to make sure that, that we understand that we have this spiritual battle that's taking place, that we have a responsibility to go out there and to pray, to pray for our community, to pray for freedom in people's lives, that we have a responsibility to not show people how holy or religious we think we are, but to love them into the kingdom of God, not how bad they are, but to love them into the kingdom of God. And so my challenge to you is we're about to take communion. We need to make sure our hearts are right with the Lord. There's a freedom right here and that there's a freedom right here that we're not devouring each other. And we take communion and we walk outside those doors and we know the mission field is out there. And as we drive home and you drive back to Pinehurst or Cataldo or to Kellogg or to Osborne or to Molin or wherever you came from, that you could be praying for each one of these places as you drive through it. You go right down the middle on I-90. Stretch your, your hand out to the right. Stretch your hand out to the left and take this battle seriously that we're under right now and be praying for freedom in people's lives that they would recognize that Christ gave his all for us. And then when you're out in the mix of the community that you are one who will show the love of Christ and the grace of God to help these people see that there is a true path to freedom and that Jesus is the way. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your word this morning, but most importantly, I thank you for the most invaluable gift of all, the giving of your life for our salvation and for our righteousness, and that in that you bridge the gap for a relationship with you, that we now have you in us, with us, guiding us and directing us down this path of freedom. Lord, I pray for strength in people's lives this morning that are sitting here to give that fight one more chance, to give that fight one more day, to keep fighting the good fight of the faith. Not that we beat ourselves up because of the fight, but that we have you with us in the fight. That there is a better day to look forward to. That there is a future hope but while we're here, we fight for your love to be known, that the world may know us by our love for one another. We give you thanks for who you are and what you've done. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.